Reveal, O God, your wonder to our eyes and open our hearts to Christ's love. Disperse from our minds any darkness and fill our lives with your light. Protect us, O God, from thoughts without action. Guard us from words without life and grant us wisdom to always, always walk in the ways of your spirit. Amen. So when I was a boy, I played ice hockey. I was skating from about as, about as early as I could walk, and I just loved it. And it usually meant that my dad was uh, helped out on the bench as an assistant coach of, of some kind. And when I was seven, the town we lived in had a league for my age of three teams. There was the silver team, there was the green team, and there was the blue team. And I started out on the silver team, it was an exciting team to be on because they always won. They had a bench full of players. They had their own dedicated goalie. He always played goalie. And because they won all their games, they were, well, let's just say they, they knew they were going to win. And I was put on the team, so I wore silver. But then my dad made a decision to, that we were going to play for the blue team. Now, the blue team didn't win very many games, and they didn't have a dedicated goalie, which meant that each of us would take turns playing goalie, even if we really didn't know how. And yet, despite my disappointment, it was where most of my friends were on the blue team. My dad knew their dads, and, and we had a connection to the people, and it, it felt good to be there and be around them. And, the families who were part of the team were great, and of course it was an awesome experience to play hockey with my closest friends. But I still remember being disappointed about the decision because it meant we probably weren't going to win, well, any games. Why would we leave silver? We, we would win games. I mean, it was guaranteed. And I remember my dad saying that we were switching to the blue team because we knew the people on the team and they didn't have enough players, so they needed people. And they were good friends. They had great sportsmanship. And I remember saying to my dad, but we're gonna lose. And when you're seven, that seems devastating. But I also remember him telling me as a response to it that the people we play with matter more than the score on the board. How many times do we say that and how many times have we heard it? But really, the, the story raises for me the question of how do you pick a team? How, do you pick for the wins? Do you, you pick for the people? Do you, you go for the sportsmanship or the quality of the experience? Do you pick a team because of their hearts? What is it that guides us through our lives? What guides the decisions that we make? Is it our faith? Is it about people, or is it about career, or is it about money? Is it about some, a unique opportunity? Is it about a place that we love? There are many possible 
reasons, many possible ways of doing discernment that guide us into making the decisions that we make, but also what guides the decisions that God makes, and what guides the decisions that God makes in relationship to people like us. These are the kinds of questions that are at the heart of this morning's scripture. The scripture is about Samuel, which is a story about God choosing the king who will follow King Saul. King Saul was the first king to rule over Israel, and Saul was not exactly um, abiding by God's ways. So God decides it's time to make a transition and seek out the next king. So God sends Samuel to find the one who would be who God wants to be the next king. So Samuel travels to Bethlehem to meet a man named Jesse, and Jesse has a whole bunch of sons, and one of his sons is to be anointed king. Now anointing in the Bible is a really big deal. When the prophet Samuel or others in the Bible anoint someone, it involves pouring oil all over the head of that person. It's not a good Presbyterian sprinkling like in baptism or, or just a dab like we do in remembrances. It's a lot of oil. And anointing carries a significance of being chosen by God. Anointing is an acknowledgement and a belief that this person is chosen by God for the work that they are to do. And the ceremony of anointing someone is a matter of great importance, so this is a significant moment. So when Samuel goes to meet the sons of Jesse, Jesse has his oldest sons. They're tall and athletic and handsome, they're all really great candidates for the New England Patriots or even King of Israel. But God says to Samuel, the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so when Jesse presents his sons, he presents those who measure up by human criteria and he leaves behind the youngest one, one named David. David of legend of the Bible. Now after meeting the older sons, God says to Samuel as each one stands before this prophet, no, not this one. No, not that one either. No, not that one. And after this happens, again and again, it seems like there are no more options until Samuel asks, is this all your sons? No, Jesse says, there's, there's one more. The one no one would expect to be king, the youngest, the one who's furthest from being ready, the one who does not seem to make sense. Samuel asks where this youngest is, and... His father says he's tending the sheep. Not a very 
royal job, it seems. Send for him, Samuel says. And when the boy arrives and stands before Samuel, the Lord says to Samuel, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. And even though anointing is such a big deal, this is a rather humble ceremony for a king to be. It's a humble ceremony for the one who God has chosen to lead God's people before God. There's no cries of long live the king as we know from movies. There's no crowning ceremony. There's no throne or banquet or feast. There's no competitions to demonstrate worthiness and there's nothing to earn or prove or display. Samuel takes his horn of oil, pours it over David's head anointing him, and the Spirit of God rests on David mightily, a boy, the one chosen to be king. And it turns out that this ceremony is not about power or about rights or about prowess. It is all about heart. It is about a boy whose heart is ready to receive God. It's about a boy whose heart is prepared to open to the gifts of God. David now is the anointed king of Israel, the king chosen by God. And when we read the stories of David as king, we read of this strong, charming, musical, handsome man who leads the people and finds favor with God. The later stories make it easy to forget what seems like small beginnings, but we know that small, even great things come from small beginnings. David, this shepherd boy, this scrawny, ruddy, not yet anything anyone would expect to be king, is ready. Not quite yet ready, but God is willing to prepare, and God is willing to be patient. But why is this the one who God chooses? Why David? Well, God tells Samuel it's a matter of the heart, and God tells us in Scripture that this is the criteria that God pays attention to. The Lord looks upon the heart, God says. And David has a heart that God knows will be ready to be in leadership, even if he doesn't want it. And even though David is not ready, God is prepared to wait until he is, and God is ready to prepare David's heart for the day that he does take this throne. Now, throughout our lives, God guides us by our hearts. And whatever is at the center of our heart is part of what will guide us. We have the ability to put things that matter at the center of our own hearts. We can invite God to prepare us at any age. We can ask God to help us find focus on things that 
bring us life, that deepen our faith, that, that open our lives to grow because of what we want to be at the center of our hearts. I think this is one of those gifts and challenges for being human and living a life of faith. You know, giving a deep consideration of what is at the center of our heart while it matters a great deal, it is an important task for having a vibrant life of faith. I remember when I was a boy in Sunday school at Lakeshore Presbyterian Church in St. Clair Shores. One of our Sunday school teachers gave each of us in the class a laminated prayer card. It was this small, almost bookmark-like item that had a prayer on it. And, and each, each of us received something, like, something different that invited us to cultivate something within our own lives of faith. Each card had something like for compassion or for, for friendship or for kindness or for peacemaking. And, I received a card that had on it a prayer for wisdom. And so before I really even knew how to pray, I had this card that was teaching me how to ask God for wisdom, and it became almost a talisman of sorts. It has lived in my Bible my entire life. So ever since I was a small boy, even when I didn't know what it was I should be prayed for, I've been offering God this prayer for wisdom. And I still ask God to deepen the wisdom in my life, and my prayer is for wisdom to be open to new things, to new ideas, to new people. I ask God to open my understanding to that which I don't understand. My prayer for wisdom is that I may know how to live and to trust God's wisdom for my own life and for the decisions that I make. It turns out that this small gift from a Sunday school teacher who I cannot even remember left me with the gift of a prayer that has sat at the center of my heart for my entire life. I still pray for wisdom, and it is one of the values that sits very much at the heart of my faith. Similarly, I remember having a conversation with a friend who's an artist. I remember hearing him talk about the ways that his faith intersects with his practice of making art, how beauty created by someone in visual arts or in music brings him near to God, and his heart then continually brings him to create beauty in the world around him, beauty that enriches his faith, but that he too hopes enriches people around him. And then there's this theologian, this theologian named Robert Farrah Capon. 
And he wrote all kinds of beautiful, exquisite, and hard-to-read books. But then he wrote one about cooking. Because his life's passion, aside from his teaching and his writing, was cooking delicious food for people that he loves. And it turns out that cooking food for people was a practice that helped him understand more deeply what it means to be in communion with God and to find unity with people, with neighbors. It turns out that at the center of his heart, God was able to prepare him to offer a life of hospitality through pans and a little bit of heat and some seasoning. I also knew this woman who helps her church resettle refugees, and she's been doing it for several decades. I remember her describing the support of families who are new to the United States, who, who cannot find their way around, who don't know what it means to ride a bus or to stock up on food for the pantry and going to the grocery store, using the library, how to put kids on a school bus. I remember her describing supporting these families as a way that God brings peace into the world. And as I think back on the stories that she would tell, I have no doubt that somewhere, the center of her heart, that God cultivated and compels her to have peace and to be a peacemaker. There's also a pastor that I know and she and her she she made a change from parish ministry to a ministry of, of writing devotions for devotional resources for people to use in, in their lives of faith. And her husband is is a professor, not a pastor. And so he teaches mostly with online learning. And during the pandemic, they they started feeling their hearts pull them in a new direction. And they made the decision to move into an entirely new town that they'd never lived in before, that they had no connection to other than the fact that a handful of their closest friends lived there. Their jobs didn't take them there. It's an okay city, but that wasn't really what was compelling them. It was their relationships with people who mattered more to them than anyone else. And as I think about the story she tells, I think about how their hearts, like many of ours, find that there are people who they love right at the center of it. And as they reflected on what was at the center of their hearts, they found God pulling them to a new place because these people were right in the center of their hearts. Now, if you and I, if we were to sit back and consider to go home and find space, to consider what is within, what is at the center of our heart, what is near to your heart that opens you to God, 
think if we considered what it was that God longed for from that place in our heart, that I believe this is what God desires as the place that we live from. That gift that somehow rests deep within us that God is calling us to live from. For just as God told Samuel, the Lord looks upon the heart. Amen.